Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Perhaps no single title better represents the dashed hopes for the 2020 movie year than Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Delayed, delayed again and again, and then opening on a few screens to little box office. And while it was a painful year for blockbusters and for movie theaters, it was still a pretty great one for movies. This week, we'll give you proof with part one of our top 10 films of 2020. It's all ahead. Don't try to understand my top 10 list, Josh. Feel it. I'll do my best on film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. Here we are, Josh. You've spent the last nine months or so recording this show in your closet. <laughs> hey, I've spent the last nine months in my closet, Adam. I mean, the family just shoved, shoved just, food yeah. underneath. We don't want to get into the bathroom situation, but uh-huh. yeah, after this show, I'm finally released. Okay. You're that afraid to come out. You've just stayed in the closet the whole time. I love that image. We have spent the last three to four weeks cramming in as many movies as possible. It's nice that you can get a screen in there. Josh, it all comes down to this, our top 10 of 2020. This week, 10 through 6, old school film spotting countdown. And in case there's anyone out there doubting whether 2020 gave us enough good movies to justify assembling a top 10, I think people can rest easy, Josh. Oh, yeah. I I feel like these are really strong lists. I've seen some complaining, which is understandable, that some films that are appearing on top 10 lists won't be released until February or March. So a lot of people won't have a chance to see them. Honestly, I don't know if I have any of those they're they're good films, the ones that people are talking about. I don't know if I have those on my top 10. So I think this is a solid list. I think I have maybe half of them. I think it might be split down the middle were films from the first half of the year. And then this second half, man, was there a ton of great stuff. So a really, really a strange year for movies, but a strong one. I think I have one of those. In fact, I know I do that's going to come up on this episode. And yeah, with COVID affecting everything and the Oscars being pushed back, a lot of movies that might have normally come out in December and then gotten an actual theatrical release in January, 
That's now happening end of January, February, and even in some cases into March. Oscars not until April this year. So there are a lot of films making various critics lists that some folks haven't even heard of because they're not really close to a release. Unfortunately, we're not able to pull off our normal end of year roundtable with our special guests in studio, but we couldn't imagine doing the top 10 without them. Joining us to get the discussion started from the Chicago Tribune, Michael Phillips. Great to see you, Michael. Good to see you all. Hey, Michael. And she's the film and TV editor at Polygon. She's also the co-host of the Next Picture Show podcast, Tasha Robinson. Hey, guys. It's really great to see you again, uh, to, to actually see you, even if uh, seeing you from a very, very long social distance. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make this work. It's, it's new for all of us. 2020 has brought a lot of new things for all of us. And this time, Josh, didn't you bring treats maybe in 2019? We can't partake this year. Yeah, you know, Debbie's Dutch almond bars. I don't know if I should tell you guys, she promised she was going to make them anyway, just for me. So <laughs> I, I might get a delivery here in the closet. I, I won't lift them up to the camera and make you jealous. That's great. That's, that's, such, a, that's such a generous way to bring in a new year, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, can't really blame you. So we're going to get to our top 10 films of 2020, and we're going to have to do this a little disjointedly. We're going to hear from our great guests off the top, and then they're going to rejoin us at the very end when we share the very top films of the year. And we like to feature different guest voices throughout these episodes. We're going to get the discussion rolling with our friend, Chris Klemek. Hi, Film Spotting Nation. Chris Klemek in Washington, D.C. You know, it would be a very film spotting answer for me to name Kelly Reichardt's First Cow as my top film of 2020. It's the last movie I reviewed, and uh, I called it another unhurried, keenly drawn excerpt of subsistence living in the Pacific Northwest. With the savage mandate of survival butting up against the civilized, in quotation marks, forces of capitalism, First Cow is a terrific movie. Would have been a fine pick. And then the other night, I finally got to see tenant in 4k on my 50 inch tv with the subtitles on as its creator did not intend christopher nolan finally gets to make his bond movie it has a byzantine plot that i understood 54 percent of on a, a first viewing uh, but i get the thrust of it which is that the future is very angry at us and that is more 2020 than anything i can think of this is a specimen of the kind of film I missed most this year, the communal blockbuster. Until Jim Cameron comes back from New Zealand, no one is doing the communal blockbuster at the level of craft and precision and ambition and originality as Nolan. These set pieces look amazing. Hoyt Van Hoytema carries these IMAX cameras to real locations. Oslo, Amalfi, Mumbai. You know, this is not a movie that's shot at Pinewood, Atlanta, or Warner's Leesden, like everything in the superhero era is now. John David Washington and Robert Pattinson are so charismatic, and their humor goes such a long way towards puncturing the the pomposity that creeps into a lot of Nolan movies, not that it ever really bothered me. As he told us in The Prestige, you want to be fooled. For two and a half hours last night, I was completely fooled. I'm a theater critic. I know I'm supposed to value a ruminative, deeply felt Academy Ratio character piece more than a maximalist 65mm Marvel. But what can I tell you? My aesthetic priorities are like Mavericks, F-14, and Top Gun. Inverted. Happy holidays, guys. Well, he knows the way to my heart. I love a good Top Gun reference, especially when 2020 did rip for me the chance to see Top Gun Maverick in theaters. But... You know, I have that to look forward to in 2021, guys. We we got from Chris a classic sort of film spotting cheat. He got his critic bona fides in, name check Kelly Reichert and First Cal, but then went 
Christopher Nolan and Tenet. I'm not sure if he's saying it is his favorite film of 2020. He is saying it is his film of 2020. Any thoughts or objections to that, Michael? You know, Chris, would you like to take him to task for that choice? I mean, sure, we can start taking him to task with that, and we'll never shut up. I mean, he's just just asking, he's a punching bag, you know. He's just, I I know, I I mean, clearly he's wrong on Tenet, but the, uh, I think that kind of prevaricating, you know, vagary that, you know, he works for the Smithsonian, which is a federal institution, is it not? So he's really kind of part of the problem of the federal government, as I see (laughs) him. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We are, we are off to a rocky start. Now, Tasha, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I did some Google searching. I looked on Letterboxd. I'm not sure that you've seen Tenet, or at least you haven't written about it. I have not seen Tenet. I have a screening link for it, and it is probably going to be the first thing that I watch after recording this session, because absolutely everything written about it by people I trust and respect said to me that it was not going to be on my my top 10 list um, hmm. by far. It just did far too much about confusing plot lines and muddy audio and all of the problems with Christopher Nolan films I've ever had times a million. Mm-hmm. I just, I had so many other films to try to cram in before this session. And I, I was cramming them in up to the last moment. You you know, you got my top 10 list about an hour before this recording. <laughs> yes. So that's, that's how down to the line it came. And uh, taking seven and a half hours or whatever it is to watch Tenet and confirm that I feel the same way about it as everybody else does mm-hmm. just didn't seem like the best use of that time when I could be watching Minari or Ma Rainey's Black Bottom or any of a, a dozen other films I smushed in at the last minute. Yeah, both of those. Just a little bit more straightforward, of course, than Christopher Nolan's Tenet. So why don't we go ahead and get into our list? And we're going to start by having you, Tasha, tell us your picks, 10 all the way down to number six. And then we'll come back and spend a little bit more time on a couple of the choices. Certainly. Well, number 10 is Miranda July's Kajillionaire, which is simply one of the best character pieces of the year, one of the most colorful and unique and dynamic movies of the year. Number nine is Kirsten Johnson's Ode to her beloved and slowly dying father, Dick Johnson is dead. Number eight, Kelly Reichert's First Cow, which we're going to hear a lot more of, I think. Number seven is David Byrne's American Utopia, which I struggled a little bit over whether we can consider this a film per se. It's a documentary. It's a concert movie. It's cameras on a, a show. But honestly, it was one of the most joyful experiences I had in home viewing uh, this entire year. And it just it has to be recognized what a tremendous and, and uplifting piece of work it is. And number six is Tom Moore and Ross Stewart's tremendous animated film, Wolfwalkers, which I talked about extensively in our Next Picture Show Best of the Year list and extensively when we paired Wolfwalkers up with Secret of Rowan Inish. So I've said a lot about this film already, and I could natter on about it for a whole nother hour. It's it's <laughs> tremendous. Okay. That's my, my bottom five. Well, we will put that on hold for just a second. We do want to hear a few more words about Wolf Walkers here on Film Spotting. Michael, let's get your 10 through 6. Uh, my number 10 is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, directed by Eliza Hittman, and that's a drama I'm, I, I think will come up on other lists. We'll find out, but uh, that one really just, uh, that's incredibly good, tough American realism, and we'll discuss further in a bit. Number 9, The Vast of Night, which I almost forgot and never actually wrote about, and that's Andrew Patterson's 1950s New Mexico said UFO 
story, uh, and it's my favorite, certainly my favorite high school kids movie of, of the last two or three years. My number eight, Mangrove, Steve McQueen's Small Axe film, which is one of five films under that umbrella he titled Small Axe. And that's, to me, the achievement of the year if you just look at, not, not necessarily Mangrove, but if you just look at what Small Axe does and did for you know any kind of anthology format and just really just to raise my spirits is like, yes, this is what a movie or can do still now, yes. Uh, that's my number eight. And there's even better films in that Small Axe quintet. Number seven, The Assistant, directed by Kitty Green, which uh, to me is just a great reminder that you can take on a, quote, issue of the day, unquote, which, of course, is a lot longer than day than Me Too and Harvey Weinstein scandals and come up with a, a really curious and distinct and, I guess, off-center in many ways, but, but, but really astute drama on the themes that have been around Hollywood and around the world for decades and centuries. Number six, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and I almost wish I put it up a little higher. This is um, the film version on Netflix, directed by George Wolfe of August Wilson's Breakthrough Play, which premiered back in the early 80s. And, I mean, everyone's talking about Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis, and there's a million reasons to like it. So that's my uh, that's my 10 through 6. So we'll go a little deeper with a couple of those picks. You each had three films in there that are going to come up. Some, even in this episode, they did make other lists. You had a couple outliers, and the first two I'm going to pair together are the ones that are defined by central female friendships. And for you, Tasha, that film is the Miranda July movie, Kajillionaire. So maybe give us a little bit more about why that film was one that resonated so much with you. Well, I really enjoy Miranda July's aesthetic, which uh, one might almost call quirky remove, except it's so very, very sincere. Uh, quirk and, and twee in cinema tends to come from a, a kind of almost ironic, sarcastic remove. But she just she goes all in. She cares, I, I believe, so much about the strange people in her various films. But to me, Kajillionaire is her most realized movie her most uh, tight example of storytelling, her best example of character building. It, it's got a just an unbeatable ending, um, a, a kind of a surprise ending that beat most of the things I saw in cinema this year. But when it comes right down to it, it's the performances. Uh, Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger as a pair of extremely small-time con artists. Evan Rachel Wood as their daughter, who they've basically raised to be a, a tool in their heists. And Gina Rodriguez as the woman they meet who wants in on their heists and ends up making making friends with uh, Wood's character. I'm Melanie. Right, okay. Uh, Melanie, meet old Dolio. Old what? Dolio. Old Dolio. Okay, I like that. I like that. It's so funny in such a strange way. It's so sweet and moving in, again, such a strange way. It's so textured, but it's just so idiosyncratic. And mm -hmm. there's few things I love in a movie, like a story that only one person could possibly tell. So that's why Kajillionaire <laughs> for me. Yeah, that's fair. And I think one of the indelible images of the year for me is going to be that family having to return, quote unquote, home every day. <laughs> And there's all that activity going on next door, whatever it is, right? And the suds, like a car wash, just are raining down their walls. And that's that's part of the job of getting to live there. They get to, I guess, mop that up every day. It's It certainly is in keeping with, as you said, the kind of quirkiness, the absurdity, the, the fantastic realism we've come to expect from Miranda July. Michael, the 
female friendship movie for you is never, rarely, sometimes, always. And it is a movie that is only on your list, even though Josh and I, we probably have it in our top 15 of the year. Certainly a strong contender, but tell us why you like that movie so much. I think in this case, it really is the specificity and yet the kind of unconventionality of uh, the relationship between the teenage girl seeking an abortion for an unwanted pregnancy, played by Sidney Flanagan, who's just unbelievably good, uh, and her cousin, played by Talia Ryder. Part of the great thing about that relationship is that it's not any kind of conventional, oh, they love each other, oh, they hate each other. It's more just that they they, they like each other and they're interested in, and they're glad they're in each other's lives, but they're just kind of stuck in this you know, in, in a town they don't really, that isn't really big enough for either of them. It's a, a small town in Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have, that film doesn't have that that easy sort of dismissal, that hillbilly elegy, <laughs> you know, kind of attitude about, about rural, quote, rural America, when you're really just talking about smaller, medium-sized town America, which is so much of this damn country. But um, I think that that kind of oscillating realism, uh, to use the word of apparently the, the year for us already, we use realism a million times, but it's a certain kind of realism. And it's, it's, it's a story that might have, in other hands, turned into the sort of miserablest cliche about just how rough things can get for this particular slice of the American middle class. And it's really just a simple track of, you know, one girl seeking an abortion, going to New York City to take care of it. And, you know, what the emotional fallout of all that is. And it's just the kind, it's it's the most interesting procedural I've seen in 2020. And that's really the only way to describe it because it's not just simply a mechanical narrative thing. It's a living, breathing human drama. And uh, mm-hmm. Eliza Hittman, the director, is to me, if she made a film like that every year or two, she would be this country's answer to the Dardan brothers, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and any other number of good, really good world class filmmakers. <laughs> um, so I, I love it. It's not an easy sit. But, you know, there's all kinds of drama out there that's, that kind of inhabits a similar slice of American life. I'm thinking of the one episode I could stomach of the HBO series, I Know This Much Is True, with Mark Ruffalo. That, that's, to me, the kind of, you know, miserableism that really doesn't rise above the cliche and is just comically morose and, frankly, inauthentic, despite the quality of the acting. You know, in this case... Hitman's film, I think, is absolutely uh, authentic to its own story and its own vision of this girl's uh, travails. And it's not just um, generic obstacles and generic travails. It's it's mm-hmm. it's hugely personal. I, I really I'm I'm really hot for this movie. So when you mention the Dardenne brothers, Michael, it makes me think of how close the camera, Hitman's camera, is to both of those women. In never rarely, sometimes, always, and I, I think that's that's part of the touch that Hitman has. Even if you look at another film of hers, Beach Rats, and she is so intensely intertwined with these characters who she wants to study and live with and just understand what are their daily routines and habits like. And here and never rarely, sometimes always, she takes that eye and puts it in this really precarious harrowing couple of days uh, in the main character's life. And we're just right along with her there in every moment, I think because of the filmmaking style and those performances too. I mean, Adam, when we were talking about our favorite performances of the year on our most recent show, both Flash Flanagan and Ryder came up for consideration. So really strong film, one that was in my top 10, probably, you know, 
as close as a couple of weeks ago, and I think I've got it right there, 12 or 13 at this point. So yeah, one of the year's best for sure. Yeah, that relationship, they're really all each other have, right? And some of the best scenes in that film are them demonstrating that support for each other. Now we have a couple of films that I'm combining as movies that are about elements that are not of this natural world. We've got close encounters of the Irish folklore kind and of the third kind. We'll go ahead and start with you, Tasha, and your pick, Wolf Walkers at number six. That is an impressive act of synthesis. I, I really like the idea of you <laughs> sitting there like you're playing two dots, just yeah. trying to find a way to connect to these two movies because they couldn't be more different. Uh, Vast of Night is an incredible movie. I, I liked it a lot. There's an amazing shot in it that I'm sure Michael's going to talk about because I haven't heard anybody talk about this film without talking about that <laughs> shot. But Wolfwalkers for me is just a series of the most beautiful textures you can possibly imagine uh, extended out over feature length. Like the, the richness and vibrancy of the imagery in this movie is just unparalleled outside of the other films produced by Cartoon Saloon, the uh, Irish studio that uh, Tom Moore's films come out of. This is the same studio that produced Song of the Sea and The Breadwinner and The Secret of Kells. Two of those movies very much in the same visual vein as this one, one a little more of an outlier. But all of them have just been like visual feasts and narrative wonders. And this mm -hmm. one, again, I, I feel like this is their most both visually and narratively sophisticated film to date. It's a folklore tale about uh, people who can turn into wolves when they sleep and how that, uh, what kind of impact that has on an Irish town under British rule in the 1600s. But it's really another story about female friendship in a way. It's a story about children trying to make the world better in spite of adults' insistence that it can only be a certain way. And it's a child-friendly movie that sophisticated enough for adults in a way that doesn't mean like winking your way through like pop culture references and just above children's heads ribaldry. It's just such a, an authentic and emotional movie. It's, uh, it's so caught up in the wonders of the natural world and how much we set ourselves apart from them. It's a series of moral messages that I know Tom Moore cares very deeply about because of the ad that his uh, studio just produced for Greenpeace that's, again, fundamentally about uh, the relationship between mankind and, and nature. Hmm. But this one turns it into a, just an epic adventure. I, I really regret not being able to see this film on the big screen because it would be overwhelming. Even on a small screen, it's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful. It is. I can't wait to see that. I, I, I've not, that's one that did not, uh, should have taken the time but didn't ever could this year it really makes you think as you're running through those titles tasha the cartoon saloon titles i mean the breadwinner i think is the one because it is a little visually different than the others that sometimes gets forgotten but man are they on a winning streak i mean this is like a pixar level winning streak since they've started doing features definitely you know anything coming from cartoon saloon now you absolutely have to reckon with family movie night here at the house a week or so ago big hit with all ages so great pick Wolf Walkers there, Tasha's number six. Now, Michael, The Vast of Night, your number nine. Are you going to talk about the shot? The extended, fabulous extended shot where you have like a handheld filmmaking that then gets get 
hand it off to somebody in a go-kart and then the go-kart takes a tracking <laughs> shot of on its own and then you have sort of enters into the high school gymnasium and sort yeah. of in the middle of the, no we're not going to talk about that okay uh, no, no of course we're going to talk about it it's great that's the thing andrew patterson the director clearly had uh, at least two major opportunities at the beginning and then in this later sequence to just show what he could do and i just love this sort of combination mostly practical effects going on here a little bit of green screen digital work but they rehearsed this shot especially the second one the long one for months and they and it was worth it it was worth every minute of that rehearsal time and it's nonetheless this film will either work for you or it won't work for you if it if the scenes where these two high school kids are just in in the studio trying to figure out what they're really listening to out there and then as they slowly slowly roll in a very small group of people who may have something to do with the origin of this mysterious transmission from somewhere out there you know that that's all very kind of 3 a.m inner sanctum sort of sounding you know, mood and atmosphere and that's just i just hadn't really kind of experienced that um you know in any kind of low budget filmmaking or big budget filmmaking in a mm-hmm. long time so I, I it's a film i just can't wait to see what what patterson does next but i also just look i'm eager to see this one again and it's been six seven months since i've seen it you know april may seems like a very long time ago right now yeah and Josh, we've talked about it. The Rivera camera work is really impressive, but you know the film's working for you if you're just as dialed in to the shots. Michael was getting at this, the shots of the main characters listening, which are still shots, close-ups, and yep. they're intently trying to process everything they're taking in, and, and we get to kind of live through them sharing that experience as well. Well, and that's where the radio drama element comes in, right? Where it's pure audio storytelling the screen even going blank at one point during one story so we're just listening to this narrative and talk about a range of talent on display here for a, for a relatively new filmmaker in Patterson managing these bravura takes that Michael's talking about and then coming up with the material that can sustain a blank screen as well. So it's not, you know, you can't say this is like a one trick. I think that's what's promising about The Vast of Night, right? It's not like one impressive trick that's been pulled off by Patterson, but a number of really ingenious things going on in this movie. The sound design on that film oh, is mm-hmm. some of the most spectacular yeah. I've ever seen. I mean, it, it brought back David Lynch's eraser head for me in terms of both noticeability and subtle just use of sound design to tell a story. The whole thing is basically a campfire tale. It's the kind of story you would expect somebody to tell you late at night as you're sitting around in a fire in a hushed voice. And you can, just as you can with a campfire tale, you can give yourself over to it or not, and it's going to make a huge difference in your experience. But if you look at the structure of that film, it makes no sense. You know, two kids hang out together. They ask a question. Some people tell them some, some stories. Something happens at the end. There's not a lot of, of build or drama there. And yet, if you if you have placed yourself into the movie, if you've given yourself over to trusting it and what it's doing, you're as on the edge of your seat as if they were on the edge of a cliff the entire time. <laughs> so, did you recognize the sound we played on the radio tonight? No. But I believe I know. What is going on? Can you tell me what that is? I believe they're up there tonight. Right now. And I think there are some reasons to support that idea. Like what? I think they stay away from big cities. I think they wait for people to get together in one place like tonight. 
And when everyone gets out of that game, they're going to be gone. I think they like people alone. Well, that is a great setup for the rest of this episode. Josh and I now going to go deep on our 10 through 6 picks. And then we're going to welcome you guys back here for next week's show. We're going to hear your 5 through 1. And we'll have some conversations surrounding a couple films in particular where there is overlap. It never happens with this group that we have one or two films that appear on all four of our lists, but 2020, it figures, would be the year where something crazy like that happens. So, Tasha, Michael, thank you very much, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Next week. Hey, Adam and Josh. It's your PA cat here calling in with my favorite movie of 2020. I am definitely giving it a little bit of an edge just because I saw it on the big screen in February, just before everything with the pandemic started. It was a packed house. It was an absolute blast. Lee Winnell's The Invisible Man uh, held up even when I watched it again at home. I don't know what more you people want than a twisty, smart, surprising freakout. Uh, it absolutely never lets up. It brings some really interesting and fresh perspective to the horror of not being believed. There's some uh, excellent commentary on technology and gender politics and power dynamics and all of that good stuff. And Elizabeth Moss totally runs away with the show. Um, she was also fantastic in Shirley this year, but really I think this is her best performance of the year and uh, definitely one of the overall best performances of the year for me. I still think it's awesome and effective. I really would encourage everyone to check it out if you haven't yet. And yeah, no one is more surprised than I am. The Invisible Man, my number one pick of 2020. Thanks, guys. 2020 may have been a disaster in so many ways, but for us, a very rewarding year having our production assistant, Kat Sullivan, on board and involved with the show. And she's showing you why there with a very good pick of The Invisible Man. Back when that came out, Josh, it really was a completely different world, right, from the one we're sitting in right now? Yeah, and and the theatrical experience is absolutely would serve a movie, a genre movie, a horror movie, really, like The Invisible Man. But I, I love this pick because, Kat's right, Moss. This was the Moss performance of the year for me as mm-hmm. well. And it's the fresh perspective that Kat talks about there. This is a property, a story that we are so familiar with. When you hear, there are certain ideas when you hear that there's going to be another movie, you just kind of instinctively roll your eyes, right? But by bringing Moss, I mean, how great to have a talent like Moss, mm-hmm. you know, in a genre piece like this, just elevating it in terms of performance. But then what Winnell does in terms of, yeah, a woman who's not believed, just making it timely and topical and resonant in a way you wouldn't expect. It's it's right now as things are, you know, I'm shaking out the lower end of my list. I think I've got it as my 15th favorite film of the year. Okay, so 15, very good placement, but not in the top 10. I want to hear what your number 10 favorite film of the year was, Josh. So Michael had it at number eight. I'm starting my list out with Mangrove. This is, as he said, one of the five films in Steve McQueen's Small Axe Anthology. And, you know, it's right away you kind of got a sense that this is going to be, for many of us, for me especially, an education this anthology. And it's it's no wonder that one of the titles in another installment is education. I think this is partly the project of the series is to let people know that in England, in this time, 
here is what was happening to a subculture, to a group of people who have been ignored and they were being ignored at the time by society. And here's a way to kind of reclaim that. Mangrove surprised me how much I went for it because it is in its second half a courtroom drama. And it's not that I'm opposed to those, but they're not always the most cinematic experiences. I think the trick of Mangrove is it sets up its first half by being so richly cinematic, giving you a portrait of this Caribbean community in Notting Hill, London neighborhood uh, in the 1960s and letting us just live in this restaurant, the Mangrove restaurant, right? Where it's this um, focal point for the community. We hear, we live in the music, we live in the food, we see what their lives, how rich the lives are for this group of people. But then we also see the oppression that they face at the hands of police. And it's oppressive that first half because you just see, you know what this movie reminded me of, Adam, the more I thought about it, Barry Jenkins, if Beale Street could talk because that film, which, which dealt with racial oppression at the hands of police as well. It's its primary interest was a beautiful life for the central black couple in that movie. And I think that's what Mangrove is giving us too, is these glimpses of a beautiful life for this community, and then the ways it's it's systematically being snuffed out. And then in the second half with the courtroom drama, how these people fight often by representing themselves in court, a couple of them, right, to reclaim that sense of community. And Mm -hmm. so this just, it worked wonderfully for me. And the more I thought about Small Axe as an entire project, the more I thought, yeah, I'm going to, this will be a little bit of a spoiler, but I need to squeak another film (laughs) in my top 10, and it's probably going to be Mangrove. So I've got it there at number 10. Yeah, almost made my top 10 as well. And of course, I love the connection. And I think that's very well said to If Beale Street Could Talk, my favorite film of that year. You're right, both films fundamentally about oppression and injustice and racial inequality, but just kind of stunning and gorgeous to look at. They do give you that glimpse, as you noted, Josh, of what this life could be. If only. And I think it's actually a great transition to my number 10, because as you talk about the mangrove restaurant, whether it was the intention or not of the main character, great performance as Frank Critchlow, Sean Parks to create this space that was symbolic of something larger as a community focal point or whether he was just trying to run a restaurant. That's what it became. It became the former something much larger within the community. And in part two, we are going to talk, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about another movie that presents such a space within a biased and unjust society, except it's one where people of color feel completely safe to be who they are. There's no hint that the police might be coming in at any second, though you might say, especially after you see Mangrove, it does hang over the movie, but we're Mm -hmm. going to get to that movie. The key is it is their space. It's unsullied by outsiders and anyone who is trying to oppress them. And that's what the Chicago recording studio in an ideal world in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom would be. And almost the entire movie takes place within this studio. Of course, It's not an ideal world. It's the 1920s, and it's a space owned and operated by white record producers who appreciate the music that Ma Rainey and her group make, but they mostly appreciate how they can make money off the music made by Ma Rainey and her group. And we reviewed this movie a few weeks ago, and I talked about the movie Central Conflict between Ma, Viola Davis, and her hired trumpet player, Levy, played by Chaswick Bozeman, as being one of style. He wants to play a different up-tempo type of blues, not the slow traditional blues that Ma favors and has made her living off of. 
She just wants him to play the song as she sings it. She says at one point the way everybody else plays it. And he counters with, well, I was playing it the way I felt it. And I was watching the anatomy of a scene with George C. Wolfe, the director of Ma Rainey. It's the New York Times feature that our friend Mikado Murphy produces. And Wolfe narrates a two minute bit where we're getting that very confrontation between Ma and Levy. And Wolf, the director, says they've been battling in different ways up until this point and in their time at the studio. And she really does feel threatened by him because he's, quote, emblematic of the future. Levy, what were you doing? Why are you playing all them notes? You're playing 10 notes for everyone you're supposed to play. Don't call for all that. You're supposed to improvise on a theme. That's what I was doing. You're supposed to play the song like I sing it the way everybody else played it. Playing the song, I was playing the way I felt it. Trying to sing my song and you messing up my ear. You call that playing music? Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Y'all back up and leave me alone about my music. I done told you. It ain't about your music. It's about Ma's music. Cutler, that's all right. I already told you what to do. What I care about what you and Cutler do. So there is this power struggle going on, right, between the old school and the new school. Except, Josh, I can't help but wonder how that conflict might be different. It's certainly how the character trajectories over the course of August Wilson's play and Wolf's adaptation here that was written by Ruben Santiago Hudson would be different if they actually got to determine their own artistic paths. There is, because of that, a rage justifiably within both of these characters and Davis internalizes it. You see it in her face. You see it in that defiant frame, kind of mostly what she's holding back. And Bozeman externalizes everything as Levy. There is nothing that's held back, and he's a lot more frenetic and and frenzied and volatile with his words and actions. And someone watching this movie, maybe they see it and think Ma's too stubborn. She's standing in the way of progress, the progress Levy represents. Or you watch it and think, you know, the young upstart should defer to Ma because of the sacrifices she's made and how she's earned the right to have a band that plays the way she wants it to. And of course, both things are true at once. And the only side to really stand against is the one that's exploiting both of those people. I watched a clip from 60 Minutes where Viola Davis was talking about this movie and of course was asked about the loss of Chadwick Boseman and what it was like working with him and what she thinks now of the performance. And she said, I think it's the greatest role for a young African man ever. She's talking about Levy because it's a character that comes full circle. And I'm not inclined to disagree with Viola Davis, even if I had a more informed perspective on the subject, but certainly after seeing the depth that Bozeman brings to this role, it's very easy to assume she's right. It's just a staggering performance, a tragedy that he's gone, and you've heard us here on the show talk about it. You've probably heard lots of others write about it, and none of it is hyperbole. That's how good Chadwick Boseman is in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is available currently on Netflix. I like your notion of of thinking about that film in terms of the space that it's creating and what that means for these characters, because obviously it's really tied to its theater roots, right? You can, Mm -hmm. you can see how important that was on the stage in defining essentially these two spaces. We get the basement rehearsal space where Levy mostly spends time with the other musicians. And then the recording studio itself where Ma kind of reigns supreme. And this speaks to your description of, of how they carry themselves where Ma is essentially kind of this still, 
real central force in that studio. Everything revolves around her, everyone's attention, all the motions. And Levy, yeah, is like this live wire mm-hmm. who's who's kind of claiming because he's got to claim power in that rehearsal space. He's he's not he's low on the pecking order down there, but he does kind of flip that. And then the movie comes to a head, of course, when Levy invades Ma's space and right. how those two are going to interact. And that's the immediate drama, but you're also right. Like there's the overarching drama of who owns this studio, who's yep. running this studio. And that's the power struggle that Ma's aware of when she even says at one point, once they get my voice down on that record, they don't care about her. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, there's uh, there's a lot going on in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that is very much tied to the exact rooms where these characters are at any given moment. Your number nine movie of 2020. I can't wait to talk about this with you, Adam, because we we've you know gone back and forth slightly. I think on Slack, we've both seen it at this point. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. What a what a strange movie. The first one from brother filmmaking team Bill Ross the Fourth and Turner Ross that I've seen. A similar similar to some of their other projects, from what I understand. Basically, I watched this pretty much assuming I was watching a documentary that was chronicling the last 24, 30 hours or so in a dive bar in Las Vegas. So we meet the regulars there, including you know one guy who wakes up there. We we get the sense he pretty much sleeps there every night. He has no else to go shaves in the bathroom and when the when opening time comes he starts drinking again and we meet maybe six seven eight other people including two bartenders who this is their life and you're watching this and you're getting a few hints here and there something you know some of the things that are being captured are just you know how did they do that there's a dance sequence in the parking lot that is captured via not only in the parking lot, but also the security camera footage from the bar. And I I started thinking, okay, something's going on here. So sure enough, realize afterwards that what the Ross brothers have done is they did go and meet real barflies in their hometown of New Orleans and kind of quote unquote cast them, right? These people would be good to bring into this sort of scenario, stage scenario, and just let them drink and riff and improvise. And that's what we get. It's fascinating, Adam, but also it's in this strange space between documentary and fiction Mm -hmm. that we could probably have a whole show on is one way better than the other. What I found, the reason Bloody Nose Empty Pockets is on my list is, first of all, because I don't quite know what to do with it, as you can tell, and so it's still bedeviling me. But also, I think this is a movie that manages to do both things that fiction and documentary filmmaking can do. I I think like fiction, I think captures almost the universal a little bit better by, you know, the, the story, these imagined stories that resonate with us on a universal level. Whereas documentary, I think more like journalism, right? It captures the details, the specific bloody nose, empty pockets somehow manages to both. So Mm -hmm. you might have some quibbles with, you know, well, but, but it's not clearly defined or you feel tricked as a viewer. I mean, I kind of wrestled with a lot of those emotions, but for me, it, it, because it managed to pull both those things off, I think, I think it's pretty impressive. And yeah, I'm just curious to see, you know, Mm -hmm. as someone who really likes documentaries, Kiarostami, I think definitely came to mind because he works with non-professionals who are kind of riffing on their own experiences as well in these stage scenarios. I think probably Bloody Nose Empty Pockets falls more in that space than, you know, Frederick Wiseman, obviously, or Steve James or something like that. But, but yeah, what'd you think of it? So 
anyone listening to this who's been listening to the show for a while and they know my cinematic preoccupations is in shock. Their jaws just on the floor, Josh, that you're the one putting this in your top 10 and I don't really have it too close. I also am a fan of the movie insofar as I am definitely like you still wrestling with it. And I'm definitely someone who is typically a proponent of movies that push the boundaries of documentary ethics. You can manipulate the truth to get at a larger truth, the Herzogian ecstatic truth approach. I love it. And I was thinking of a scene I remember showing a class once at the University of Chicago's Graham School where we watched a scene from Little Dieter Needs to Fly. And this is a documentary by Herzog. It was later made by Herzog into a narrative film. His life was brought to the screen. Christian Bale played Dieter. And there's a moment where we watch at the beginning of the film Dieter go into his house and I think he turns the knob on his door like three times before he goes in. It, it's almost like a, a compulsion, a weird little tick. And it turns out later, Herzog said, well, actually, he he never did that. I just kind of had him do that. I staged that because I thought it was getting at some larger truth about how he was once held captive for so long and didn't have his freedom, that that act of opening the door is still this kind of momentous thing. You wouldn't know that unless Herzog told you about it later. I think usually these movies that are pushing those boundaries, and this is where someone like Kiristami does come in, you know when that line is being blurred. It's a little bit more obvious when reality is being manipulated. Mm -hmm. And I think that puts you in a position as a viewer where you're more in dialogue with that experiment. You're being challenged. And here, you mentioned maybe a few hints. I really had no idea whatsoever what they were up to until I saw it in a review after the fact. So unless you were someone who was reading the press notes or maybe it played at Sundance and everybody was talking about it, I don't think you would go in being aware of the experiment. And I don't know that I feel like they're doing anything wrong, Josh. In fact, mm -hmm. I love, again, that they're pushing that boundary, but not having more hints for me. The only one for me early on was when that character you were describing, who's the, the guy who stays there, it seems almost overnight, like he lives there, mentions being an actor. Yes. And he is he is he was a clue really for me. good. Yeah, he <laughs> is really good. And you go, oh, okay. Maybe they found someone who has these kinds of chops that he can bring to a quote unquote role like this. But that was really about it. So long story short, I'm in awe of Bloody Nose Empty Pockets as an experiment because there's no way it should work the way it does. I mean, if you just tried to recreate what the Ross brothers did, I would assume that you were gonna fail. 99 times out of 100 in terms of getting any truth whatsoever. I think I think there is truth there. What that truth is, I'm still not entirely sure. Bedeviling is a good word for the movie. Hello. Hello. You're just in time for the knot party. We're not having fun in celebration of not closing. Is this a real thing? Is this really happening? So Michael Martin is is the guy we were both thinking of. And he was he was like my first tip off because it's not that he's he's acting in an obvious way, but he has a very different presence than yes. everyone else where I was like, Hmm, but I'm still wondering in the Herzog example you're giving, do, mm -hmm. do you have similar issues with that then than you have with bloody nose, empty pockets about the doorknob or not? Well, I think I'm equating them in this scenario and I'm saying that that's actually atypical for Herzog. I think most often when he's making movies that get at that form of ecstatic okay. truth, you know, that 
reality is being messed with. Yeah. And it's more of a meta exchange between you and the documentarian. And that little Dieter example is one like this you one where know. I'm not saying he did anything wrong. Right, Again, right. I don't want to apply any rules or laws to documentary filmmaking. I'm just saying that when you aren't aware of it and wrestling with it in the moment, and it takes kind of that secondary source to fill you in. I mean, I'm actually surprised you like it as much as you do, Josh, because often I think you are someone I found to, if you only really got that perspective that unlocked the movie from something a filmmaker said, then then you kind of discount that typically. Well, I think maybe it's because I smelled something in the movie that I felt okay. like I was and whether or not they meant to leave those hints. But yeah, I might have had a if I was completely like the rug taken out from under me afterwards, I might have had a different response. Also, I will say, like, I'll admit when I discovered it, there was disappointment. But I had, you know, it was almost like, mm -hmm. oh, I want all of these people to be quote unquote real because right. I, I think that in my mind, I would have equated that. Maybe I would have had it at like number five on this list, you know, mm -hmm. for whatever that's worth. But I do think what they've captured here is pretty astounding. And but yeah, I, I think the deception part is I think that's still a fair question. I think it's one that still does, you mm -hmm. know, rankle me a little bit. But uh, in this case. Bloody Nose Empty Pockets, number nine for me. Yeah, and not to belabor it, Josh, we should move on, but I do think about a scene where an older African-American man is sitting at the bar, and I think he's talking about his military experience, and it's a very somber, kind of sad reflection. And watching it, especially thinking back on it now, knowing what I know, I imagine that what he is saying and expressing there is exactly true sure. to who he is as a person. And it it comes out because of these fabricated circumstances, but we get truth there. And that is what ultimately, of course, they're they're trying to get at. And if we get enough moments like that, then the endeavor and the experiment is successful. It's a story I can guarantee he's told at least once before at a different bar. Yeah. My number nine is, well, <laughs> it's certainly meta and it's certainly in so many weird ways about storytelling. And that is, I'm thinking of ending things. The third film as a director from Charlie Kaufman after Synecdoche, New York and Anomalisa. And the most succinct way I think I can characterize what it was like watching this film. And here it's appropriate to reference Christopher Nolan, not only because we've already talked about him and Tenet a little bit, but we devoted 2020, a good chunk of it to Nolan's work. Our first ever oeuvre review, watched all of his films, mostly in order, and then it all culminated with Tenet, which actually also opened the same weekend as I'm thinking of ending things, and we talked about it on the same episode. So I really have been linking these two films in my mind, but it's not Tenet that I go back to with this Kaufman film. It's actually Inception, the scene where DiCaprio and Paige are inside his subconscious, his dream, and he's explaining the whole process. And he says, never recreate places from your memory. Always imagine new places. Only use details, a street lamp or a phone booth, never entire areas. Because building a dream from your memory is the easiest way to lose your grasp on what's real and what is a dream. And I'm thinking of ending things is certainly slippery and elusive enough. I'm not comfortable really making any definitive statements about it, but I'm pretty sure nobody in I'm thinking of ending things is dreaming, but losing your grasp on what's real and fantasy because of a creator who is building the fantasy from memory. That's the best description of what I think Jesse Buckley's Lucy, Jesse Plemons, Jake, and then we as viewers 
are all experiencing together with that same kind of paranoia, the the creeping hostility and helplessness just sustained for the entire runtime of the film. And I mentioned the the hostility and paranoia because if you remember that scene in Inception, Josh, right before it, Paige asks, why are they all looking at me? And he explains, right, that the subconscious feels that someone else is creating this world. Something is off. Are they going to attack us? No, he says, just you. Well, watching this Kaufman film, you're so immersed in this kind of suffocating headspace, but also to some extent the physical space of either the car or this house that the audience we end up functioning like one of Cobb's projections where we're not just these detached participants in the experience. We kind of start to converge just like they do in that scene with every inconsistency and every complicating detail. That's when we kind of want to attack, except who do you attack in this case? Is it Jesse? Is it Jake? Is it, is it Kaufman? I think it's pretty incredible too. And I'm obviously going to be vague here to not get into spoilers. You have a female character as our guide through this, whose agency is never in question, even as technically she doesn't have any. Does that make sense to you anyway, as someone who's seen well, the film? Yeah, but it also speaks to like, you know, one of the things I, and I, I like, I'm thinking of ending things, but that's exactly was kind of a sticking point for me where as we start to see what's really going on here, mm-hmm. Jesse becomes as she needs to be, and again, I'm tiptoeing, <laughs> Yes, as she needs to be a secondary or tertiary character. Sure. And again, that's Kaufman's right to pull that rug out from under us, whether or not it makes it, as I said in our review, it makes it way more of a Charlie Kaufman movie. But to me, it was like we lost a little bit there too. So if, if only because I was enjoying Buckley's performance so much and she, you know, she gets a little bit less to do after that point, even though what we continue to see is is continually interesting. And I think you're right. Your your comparison there, you know, Kaufman is the one pulling the strings here, right? Yes. And if I'm reading the movie correctly, again, no spoilers, like there, there is one perspective we're really Correct. getting. So, so for us, it's the audience who's really struggling. I don't see those characters. Yes. They are on the screen struggling literally in what's literally happening to them as physical objects let's just say okay. <laughs> but but we as viewers are the ones who are really struggling and it's Kaufman the one the creative voice who's pulling the strings sure but the conceit of it is there is someone else who is creating this world and maybe that's all we should say as i read it yes and yes. and i will say once i figured that out i did appreciate mm-hmm. the movie more <laughs> it's an odd song to out here in in the middle of nothing. From Oklahoma, the musical. I didn't know you were a fan of musical theater. Well, I'm not really. Anyway, I just know a few musicals. Uh, Oklahoma, Phantom, Carousel, South Pacific, Guys and Dolls, Flower Drum Song, Wicked, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Music Man, Pajama Game, Cabaret, The Lion King. Grease, King and I, Sound of Music, Pelt, Joey, Charlie's Aunt, My Fair Lady. But I know Oklahoma best, I guess. They do it every few years for obvious reasons. I mean, who does it every few years? Sometimes I see kids who are in past productions. There is, I think, a tenuousness to that point in terms of it upending your expectations with... Lucy's character, and it does subvert 
any sense of control or kind of stability we do have as viewers. And there's no direct connection to 2020 in terms of the material. I mean, I think this is the least 2020 movie in so many ways. But as far as reflecting that instability and an overwhelming feeling of oppressiveness and dread somehow mixed with monotony, then maybe I'm thinking of ending things as actually the most 2020 movie. So makes my list at number nine, another movie like Ma Rainey's that's available on Netflix. All right. My number eight is uh, a film that we didn't discuss at all on the show. It's been out for a little while now, available on Netflix, and it is the 40-year-old version. Here's another kind of melding of reality and fiction, Adam, although it very much presents itself as a comedy, I would say, a New York City comedy. It is written, directed, and stars Rada Blank, who is a New York City playwright, and here she plays basically a variation on herself, a struggling black creative type who has this crisis of conscience when uh, a pandering white theater producer comes calling to work with her. I think he's known for, they say in the movie, quote-unquote, poverty porn, so this this supposedly progressive theater producer that she's very leery of working with, but she also is in desperate need of work. Uh, This is a comedy, as I said, Blank was a revelation to me. She is so incredibly funny. She pushes self-deprecation. I mean, it's a real performance, too, because the self-deprecation where she gets a lot of her humor from starts to veer dangerously towards self-loathing. And I think that's where you start to get a real performance from here. I think she brings some formal touches to this movie that I was not expecting in terms Mm -hmm. of insert shots of people in her neighborhood who are commenting like a Greek chorus on the decisions she makes. I loved those. She wrote some, there's kind of a subplot where Rada decides to pursue writing raps and working with this underground hip hop producer about being 40, about being a struggling creative type. And those songs are really good. They're really funny that that Rada Blank herself wrote. So there is a ton going on here. Yo, here's a little story about a girl who's black with herpes, diabetes, chicks notorious to fat. Let's add some asthma attacks from all the courtyard crack use. True current use is low, but I want my shit produce, so no happy blacks in the plot lines, please. But a crane shot a big mama crying on her knees for her dead son, the b-boy star who almost made it out. Sounds thump enough to gain my film some capital, so I'ma pitch some up shit made just for the screen, the most pathos trench story that's ever been seen. Sure, blacks be having huxtable achievements. Here's why I think it landed on the list for me, Adam, is I found it very moving as well. And maybe I'll save that element for when we do a rap party. I think it's going to come up in some moving moments for me. But also this movie really challenged me as a white critic because there is, it's not the only thing the movie is about, but there's a real tough line here about what are white people like this producer or even white theater goers um, in New York City, what are they doing when they appreciate or support or proclaim black art? And it's something I don't I'm not saying I came out of the movie with like an answer, but it's really making me ask those questions of myself. When I praise something, why am I doing that? Um, do I have the standing to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, all these really difficult questions that I think are pertinent especially in 2020, where uh, look at our lists. Like the, those are questions we could have asked already of a couple of titles on our lists. And so I appreciate the 40-year-old version for kind of shaking me up like that and challenging me like that and also making me laugh quite a bit. So I'm really glad yeah. I managed to squeeze this one in and I've got it there at number eight. Yeah, I did too, based on the fact that I knew it was going to make it on to your list. And I'm glad I did. I do think it's a good movie. There's a very predictable 
uplifting version of this story that I thought Blank was going down. And in fact, if she had done it still with the sense of humor that she has and that kind of self-deprecation and also with some of those formal elements, I probably would have been okay with it. But I like the movie that we get much better. I think it's much more realistic. I really like Oswin Benjamin, Mm. who has never appeared on screen before, at least in anything that's on IMDb as D, who plays the guy that puts together her beats and they do get involved in a romantic relationship and some of those visual choices, just the, the shot of them laying on the bed together, but it's reflected in a mirror, I think is a really notable shot. And then there is a moment that shifts from black and white. The whole movie's in black and white and goes to color. I love that. That that was in a way, really quite profound. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can spoil that at some point and talk about why. I think the only part of this movie I struggled with was that there is a lot of, by design, bad theater that I didn't believe even as bad theater. And so what I mean is, I think Sam and I were talking about this a little bit, that there's a satirical element to the humor in terms of the theater scenes that I don't think is necessarily reflective of the type of humor or the tone that we see in the rest of the movie, but the comedy involving the theater really relies on that. And it's the only part of the film that I found myself being a little bit skeptical of. Not that there isn't some good humor that comes out of it, or there aren't some really pointed, sharp jabs that don't elicit a laugh or two, but there was a part of me that felt like, could you make the same point you're making without going to that extreme with some of the jokes in terms of the theater. That is what I wanted to ask you about, because did you read this as maybe taking some some shots or or maybe not direct shots, but in a way, I feel like this was a bit of a response to like In the Heights or maybe even Hamilton and some of the stuff that and again, I'm trying to separate. Maybe they're not shots at mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel Miranda, but shots at like the way white America gobbled those things up. And I do wonder if, yeah, did you, did you get like, were you thinking of in the Heights when you were watching some of those scenes you're talking about? For sure. Except I guess here's the thing I was, and I think this is a really good question, Josh. I was though giving Lin-Manuel Miranda enough credit as an artist. And I guess I was giving myself because I'd want to give myself credit and all the people who appreciated that movie who don't necessarily live that life that we still saw something in those experiences that resonated and not in a pandering way. And everything we see on screen in terms of the bad theater and the 40-year-old version is is very pandering and sort of faux uplifting. And so that's the part for me where it almost, it's like Hollywood shuffle type satire, I think, some of these, some of these moments. Yeah, I think that's a very good touchstone, actually, Hollywood shuffle. Yeah, I like that a lot. But yeah, I guess that's that's also connected to this this uncomfortable space the movie put me in, which I credit it for. So, well, my number eight, following the Charlie Coffin pick, we're going to mostly get out of our own heads, Josh, but maybe not completely. We're going to talk about a different type of fantasy, one in which we weren't confined to our homes. We spent real time with friends. We got to go to restaurants and expand our palates. We got to expand our view of the world by visiting and experiencing different places and cultures. We're going to take our fourth and final trip with Steve Coogan, Rob Bryden, 
and Michael Winterbottom. We reviewed this movie, The Trip to Greece, and did our top five trip series moments. I think in mid-May, we were still fairly early into COVID, and it was definitely one of the most fun top fives I've ever prepared for. And I joked then that it was food porn, location porn, and just being outside porn. And that's unfortunately still kind of the experience watching this movie. It's ironic, though, that as they're tracing the journey of Odysseus, what the trip to Greece is really about is returning to the thing we all desperately want to leave, which is home. So for these characters like Odysseus, home, of course, is a physical space, but more so an emotional and uh, psychological space, one that you you long for, even as you're constantly tempted to go off course. The other sailors put bungs in their ears so they wouldn't so they hear the siren song. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to hear it, but he didn't want to be lured. So he wanted to check check out the sirens. Couldn't without, be more like you. Couldn't be more close. like you. You want you want to well experience it up to a point. But halfway through, he begged them to untie him so that he could go and consummate or or uh, you know. If I strapped it. you to the mast, I would stick with the agreement. I wouldn't untie you, and I'd take some pleasure in it. I'd have little, I'd have cotton things in my ears, right? You'd be on the mast. He goes, oh, Rob, 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 I, I regret my decision. Please, untie me. The song's I fantastic. I why would I be in a Mancunian accent? Hmm? Why would I be, if I was playing Odysseus? You're not playing, no, I'm not saying you're playing Odysseus. I'm saying you are you, and I am me. I'd be going, let I, me go! And I'd say, I'm sorry. Let me swim to the sirens. Maybe it's a bit of a lightweight pick, Josh, because it mostly offered a fun escape, but this is also a series that shows in each one of the four installments some form of a eulogy, and they are all preoccupied with aging and mortality. So even in this escape, we can't completely get away from real life and the horrors of it. But this is a series, and this is a movie that's also about, sometimes in these existential ways, sometimes in real-world ways, about disruption and about discomforting the comfortable. You were getting at this a little bit with your last pick, Josh, even, I think. It's a year where everyone had to confront the degree to which you were actually willing to participate in the world and against injustice, what your role in that was. And if you remember near the beginning of this movie, they end up dropping somebody off just outside a refugee camp. And of course, a refugee camp is a place where everyone there has been displaced from their homes and they confront the horror of it, but fleetingly, <laughs> because then they try to do what most of us do, which is get on with our lives. Go have some more food, go have some more drinks, have a little bit of fun and try to forget about everything that is stacking up against you and that seems completely impossible to fix in the world. Last week, I think on our show, I mentioned top five movie foods. You would have to assume that something from the trip to Greece would make this list, Josh. But actually, for me, these movies are less about the food, which, let's face it, the whole series is about them going on a series of journeys where they're rating restaurants and writing reviews, but the food is completely secondary to everything else. And for me, they're secondary to the landscapes. For me, it's all about the things they get to look at while they're eating in Greece and in Spain and in Italy with the, the brilliant sun and the sea. So we weren't able to get out. We weren't able to travel. The trip to Greece was my escape in 2020. Yeah, perfectly fitting that way. I, I think, you know, the, the opening bit with the refugee camp, that was kind of the goodbye to the trip to Spain, which had, very, you know, ended on a very geopolitical note. And this was definitely a return to more trip comfort food in the way you're describing. So, yeah. 
appealed to us in that way this year as well. When we come back, we'll take a break from our list to announce the finalists for the coveted Golden Brick Award. Listeners, you get a vote. Then it's our seven and six picks. Stay with us. This is your chart, Ruben. Now, as far as the volume that you can hear, you on your right ear were 28%, and on your left ear, you were 24%. That's what? On the left ear, you came in at 24%. Okay. No matter how loud I made the test, I could have put it at 11, you were still going to miss 70 to 80% of the words that I said. Okay. That is not good. Yeah, I see that. So what <clears throat> What can we do about it? How do I get it back? Before getting back to the countdown, a little business. That's a clip from Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal, a movie that got a lot of love on our last episode when we shared our favorite performances of the year, made our ballots, Josh, for the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards. We also shared our picks for Best Film Editing, Cinematography, and more. Those winners have been announced by the time you are all hearing this episode. If you want to see whether or not Riz Ahmed did take that Best Actor Prize, go to chicagofilmcritics.org to learn more. Sound of Metal is one of the nominees for our Golden Brick Award, which we give to our favorite film from a new or emerging director. And I say we because, yes, Josh and I get votes, our producer Sam and a few others who are associated closely with the show, but you are included in that as well. Film Spotting listeners get to choose by voting in a poll over at filmspotting.net. So it is time to cast your vote for your favorite Brick nominee. And usually, Josh, I think we both feel like there's a really strong frontrunner I'm not so sure that's the case this year. Several of these titles do have a strong base of support, but having just introduced Sound of Metal in the past few weeks and with a lot of people catching up with it, been seeing a lot of buzz from our listeners anyway via social media, I wonder if Sound of Metal might be the favorite here. Who are the other candidates? The other candidates are The Assistant. That is from director Kitty Green, one of Michael Phillips' picks we've already heard. Also, Blow the Man Down is an option here. Directors Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy. Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, another one, has already been mentioned as a top 10 lister. That comes from writer-director Eliza Hittman. The Painter and the Thief, a documentary from Benjamin Ree. Time, another doc, this one directed by Garrett Bradley. And, yep. Another Michael Phillips pick here as your last option, The Vast of Night from Andrew Patterson. So not a good year for big theatrical releases or blockbusters, but a great year for smaller indie releases. We saw a lot of those talked about, a lot of those talked about all of these films on the show. And we usually do try to reduce it down to a list of only four or five. And that was just too hard this year because these movies were so good. We are eager to get your vote. You can place that golden brick vote now at filmspotting.net. Also, if you want a little bit more information or if you have some homework to do, because you do have plenty of time, we're not going to announce the winner of the golden brick until next month 
at our 2020 wrap party. If you want to catch up with some of these films, just go to filmspotting.net slash bricks and you can see all the titles and where you can see them. We did want to mention that you can support Film Spotting by joining the Film Spotting family over on Patreon for a mere $5 a month. You get all sorts of special features, including early show downloads, ad-free episodes, and monthly trivia spotting events. Our next one is January 9th. Can't wait for that. You also get monthly bonus episodes. So by the time this is out, Josh, I think our patrons will have heard our bonus Chicago Film Critics Association ballot categories. We riff on our favorite docs of the year, animated films, the best production design, and a lot more. Yeah, and that was a bit of a switcheroo last minute. As we were working through our ballots, we thought, let's just keep the mics going and uh, continue talking about some of these other categories. The Patreon members suggested topic, film directors working in TV. I believe that's which film directors would we like to see make a TV series. We're going to get to that still. We haven't put it aside forever. We are going to get to it probably next month. Also, Adam, I don't know if you've seen, but we have a Patreon goal. When we reach 1,000 patrons, we're going to do another virtual screening. We did this with Out of Sight, the Steven Soderbergh film, a while back. We'll watch it with listeners. You, myself, Sam, we provided some commentary during the film as well. We're getting pretty close to 1,000, Adam. So as soon as we hit that mark, we'll choose another film and have another virtual screening. Yeah, if you've got some good ideas out there, go ahead and start sending them because it seems safe to say it's inevitable. We're going to hit 1,000. As of this taping, I think we're only four away. Kat Sullivan, our great PA, was also part of the conversation last time. We hope to have her back. So if you want to join in the fun, please do that by going to patreon.com slash filmspotting. Hey, Adam and Josh, Melissa Tamanga here calling in with my favorite film of 2020 so far. So far because I still have a lot of catching up to do. But whether other new films replace this one as my number one or not, I think Kitty Green's The Assistant will continue to resonate for a long time to come. It's a film that, while focusing in on the minutiae of menial tasks and the casually degrading gendered labor in the day in the life of one individual, one woman working in a film production company, it also is about the suffocating, paralyzing, dehumanizing system in which she works, a space where otherwise moral individuals can become monsters. It is a film perhaps for this national moment. There is a brilliant central performance by Julia Garner, but this film, Kitty Green's first narrative feature, is just so formally assured. It's the sort of film that looks easier to make than it is, I think, because it has such a stripped-down simplicity to it, but that makes the camera work, the structure, and the editing all the more important. Nothing is overt, and it's in the small gestures, pauses, half-overford phrases, glances, a shadow on the window blinds, and And with those, it builds to a painful moral and emotional crisis that's hard to forget. I loved it. Thank you so much, Melissa, helping us get back into our top 10 of 2020 countdown with her pick for the best film of the year, The Assistant. And that is my number seven choice as well, Adam, as we get back into our list here. I think Melissa said it was suffocating the assistant and man does that nail it because even just you know when i hear the title of the film i I put back into that space that office space that was created by writer director kitty green for the film formally assured melissa also described the movie being and yeah every little detail 
in the assistant mm-hmm. hugely matters in capturing the experience of this main character. And I think she did come up, Adam, maybe just briefly on our Chicago Film Critics ballot show, Julia Garner in the lead role. But what a, you know, an unconventional type of performance where this is the whole thing is about her being without agency, essentially, and at the mercy of all mm-hmm. these office politics, the, these office assignments. And yet somehow Julia Garner is able to bring us right into the headspace of this main character and and feel just sort of the oppression that is bearing down on her all in one day and how she's trying to power through it. So yeah, I think The Assistant, uh, incredibly strong. Not a debut for Green, but just a second film, I believe. And I'm hugely excited about uh, what she might do next. Yeah, I am too. It's a very good movie. And I didn't think about it relating in any way, shape or form to my number seven choice. Very different movies. This one told on a much grander scale. But something you said did connect with me, Josh. I'll get to that here in a moment. My number seven film of the year is David Fincher's Mank. I can't believe how Netflix heavy, not by design, my list is so far. I'm not going to try to offer a rebuttal here to the great film writer and critic Amy Tobin, because I would never dare. But I don't know if you read her thoughts on this movie. Certainly not a dismissal or a takedown, but she does end her commentary on Mank Fincher's film about Herman Mankiewicz and the writing of Citizen Kane this way. And she's just been talking about the sound design. She says the pictures, however, are less expressive. Mank doesn't look like any 35 millimeter black and white film circa 1930 to 40 or like a digitized copy of such a film. It is its own animal, a tour de force registered in the middle of the grayscale with details, especially in the exteriors, so sharp they seem etched. It's a fascinating surface for anyone attentive to how digital images are created in the camera and in post-production, but it's strangely inert, a word I would never use to describe any other Fincher film. The high-contrast expressionist cinematography of Wells' movies suggests the hidden mysteries of consciousness itself. There's nothing hidden in Mank. What we see is what we get, and that's a pity, since the subject of the film is the secret reservoir of creative freedom, enduring against the odds. Now, whether the imagery lacks vigor or not, if you find it inert, I suppose that is up to each viewer. But I think that her description there of the cinematography is accurate and that it is mostly low contrast, right? There's an overall softness to what we see in Eric Messerschmidt's cinematography, a grayness to the black and white. So saying that it's not as expressionistic as Kane is is definitely accurate. There is a lot of clarity to it. There is, like Kane, certainly a deep focus. But again, the the grayness to the black and white is something that does suggest everything being visible. And this idea that nothing is hidden and what we see is what we get is, for me, what Mank is ultimately kind of about. It's Fincher reckoning with these things that we see right in front of us, but we carry on anyway. And maybe we're complicit in, or we just outright deny. And that's actually the tie back to the assistant a little bit. At what point, the decision that character has to make is, at what point do I do something? At what point do I say something? Or am I complicit in this? Am I just as guilty, even when I'm just standing outside making photocopies or preparing the coffee for people? And it just seems so fitting to me that Fincher would then put on this movie kind of this this sheen of virtue that we get, right? That's much less kind of psychologically maybe harrowing than a movie even like Citizen Kane. I think Fincher's take on this writer and this man suggests that Mank 
sees the truth clearly and sees everyone's compromised ideals, his own. He's appropriately cynical about the world. He's often the person who is willing to say it, but just at dinner parties and usually drunkenly, and he can be dismissed. But I think as it pertains to his work and having the conviction of his ideals, there really is none. That's the journey I think he takes as a character, the one that resonated with me until Cain and going through this process of remembering and reliving and regretting. He felt like he could dismiss or choose to ignore the role he even plays in kind of this this Hollywood make-believe machine. And we talked recently about Amanda Seyfried on the show and her performance seems at this point a shoe-in for a Best Supporting Actress nomination as Marion Davies. She does, don't you think, Josh, redeem Marion Davies, which isn't to say she exonerates her or or make her this completely redeemable character. But don't we only have the vision of Marion Davies really that that Citizen Kane gave us that that record of perception is the one that we all fall back on. That's the one that everyone now believes as the truth. And Seyfried really does make her human. Whether or not Marion Davies deserves it or not, I can't really say. But I think the the record <laughs> deserves both accounts for people to draw their conclusions from. I don't even know who this Mr. Sinclair is, but he wrote about us for a book. I used to quote it word for word. I saw our richest newspaper publisher keep his movie mistress in a private city of palaces and cathedrals, furnished with shiploads of junk imported from Europe and surrounded by vast acres reserved for use by zebras and giraffes telling in jest that he had spent six million dollars to make his lady's reputation and using his newspapers to celebrate her change of hats. Must be hard to be on the receiving end of that. People think because you're on the cover of Modern Screen they know you. Mm. Oh, nerds. What do I have to complain about? Yeah, she, for sure what she does is she makes that character a much richer presence in the film than I think I probably would have expected if I right. had just heard that she was playing Marion Davies in a Fincher film about, you know, Mankiewicz. You mentioned the Taubin piece. I didn't read that, but I, I was able to listen to the Slate spoiler special on Mank with friend of the show Dana Stevens. And she kind of it kind of helped me unlock something. They were getting into some of the background about why I, I liked Mank, but maybe not quite as much as you and it has to do with this you know arc that you're tracing for for mm-hmm. mank as a character and if that particular even though i could kind of see where that was going if it didn't resonate with me quite the same they mentioned how this whole Upton Sinclair element of the story where Mank, you know, kind of supports him, but maybe not as much as he could have. And that's one of the things he's wrestling with in the way you were describing that that was kind of not historically based at all. They, they right. Fincher's dad or Fincher, when he worked on the screenplay later, kind of placed that on to Mankiewicz. And I don't think that's not allowed. You know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say like that that was the wrong thing to do. I think obviously in creative freedom that that's definitely a move you could make, but it was it was maybe revealing to me like okay, maybe that's why it didn't seem as integral to who Mank was as this person on screen because it was being picked up from one place and placed on top of Mank. And I feel like that was one of the limitations of, of the movie maybe is for all the technical proficiency and, and the performances you mentioned that I did appreciate. It kind of felt like placing these ideas on, Mm. on a story where they didn't, not that they didn't fit, 
but the fit wasn't great. Quite as great as maybe other people have have found it to be. Yeah, it's tough because even though some of this movie is rooted in history, and I suppose it's a hard thing to spoil, there are other things, obviously, that I don't want to give away. And I like that that Upton Sinclair element is one where my sense of Mank watching it is that he's still kind of detached and still choosing to not get involved until certain things do kind of come into play that force him to confront, you know, his own role in it, like I was getting at, but also what he can do, what only he can do as a writer. And so it's tricky because what he's doing over the course of the film in writing Citizen Kane doesn't relate directly to Upton Sinclair, but it's informing the process of what he's writing. And by putting his name on that screenplay at the end, that that is that that active artistic conviction. I guess, that is something that goes beyond even the political. It's the political that just informs that, if that makes any sense at all, Josh. Yeah, and and as I said in our review, I actually appreciated the political element. I found that compelling Mm -hmm. and fascinating. It was just the connection you have between that and Mank. There there was more of a disconnect for me. All right, I'm going to bring in a little help um, for my number six pick, and it comes from our next picture show colleague, Scott Tobias. Hello, film spotting friends. Uh, this is Scott Tobias from your sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. And uh, my favorite movie of the year I saw all the way back in March. I didn't think I'd see another film I liked more, and I was correct. Uh, and that, that film is Dick Johnson is Dead, uh, the documentary by Kirsten Johnson that's uh, currently playing on Netflix. Uh, this is a documentary, um, personal documentary about um, uh, Johnson documenting uh, her father's decline from. A dementia and uh, and also her her wishes for him to be delivered to a to a blissful afterlife and, and just basically kind of a reflection on life and death and it's it's uh, extremely rich but but uh, a couple of things stand out for me uh, about it I mean one is that I think um, you would expect such a film to be utterly impossible to watch to be too devastating too sad. Uh, it is not that. It is palatable. It is funny. It's witty. Um, I think you really get to know both uh, Kirsten and uh, Dick Johnson, who's utterly charming. And it's a very, ultimately a very life-affirming and, and sweet, uh, bittersweet film. And then I think on another level, it's a documentary that is getting into a lot of the issues that documentaries are getting into now. It's about... Um, you know how documentaries are actual collaborations it's about how it's about documentary ethics it's about a lot of issues that are worth thinking about and reflecting upon that we don't often reflect upon when we're watching a documentary uh, so it's got that level going for it too uh, the way i always the way i kind of described it is it's it's basically like uh, an Abbas Kiarostami movie that you could just watch with anyone so uh, I'd watch it with anyone. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, Dick Johnson is dead. My favorite movie of the year. All right, guys. Thanks. So that's the Kirostami reference I was thinking of. Adam, I, I had previously mentioned that I thought Michael might have talked about it, but I had heard Scott's voicemail earlier and that was in my head. And I think it's because he's exactly right when it comes to Dick Johnson is dead. This is one of these documentary experiments, maybe even more personal than some of the films we've seen of Kiristami, considering it does involve Kirsten Johnson and her father. What Scott didn't mention, for those who haven't seen it, and you really should, it's it's right there on Netflix, the way they wrestle with 
what's happening to her father is they decide we're going to make this film. We're going to stage scenes of how you could die. So falling downstairs, an air conditioner falling on your head. And they do these with kind of like a, a black humor, right? And then they also stage these other scenes of what might heaven be like for you afterwards. So there are these fantasy sequences. And those are, even with the dark humor of the, the earlier scenes, Scott's exactly right when he talks about life affirming. I mean, that's that's what you come away from this movie feeling is that the way Kirsten Johnson and her father have chosen to affirm his life while they're still sharing it together is is just incredibly heartwarming, even as your heart is breaking, knowing how limited the time is and how we see that that time slip away in the film. You know, there's a, there's a a jump cut, I think almost at one point, maybe it's not that harsh, but where the gregarious smiling Dick that we met meet at the beginning of the film, you can see that he's a changed man later in the film. Mm -hmm. They're still making the movie together and he can still participate, but there's a larger weight on his shoulders. Do you have any, I mean, there are some people who feel like if it gets worse to a certain place, I don't want to live. No, I love life too much for that. So you would you you would be interested in living to the state that mom was in where she couldn't communicate? Yeah, I think so. But I'll give you permission to euthanize me. <laughs> At what point do I have permission to do that? Well, pass it by me before you do it. It's just an incredible feat that Kirsten Johnson has pulled off in some ways very different from another film of hers that made a previous top 10 list of mine, Camera Person, which to me is just like more excited about what she can do next as a director. Because, again, working in the documentary format, but coming up with two distinct treasures so far to my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this film. And I'm going to hold my thoughts here, Josh, and not add anything because I'm positive that this film is going to come up again in our 2020 rap party as we reflect on certainly most moving moments oh, yeah. of Absolutely. the year. My number six film of 2020 is another documentary, and it is The Truffle Hunters. And this has been a very good year for docs, including one more that's going to make my top 10. But I've still seen my share of very straightforward, conventional kind of boring documentaries, ones that aren't just by the book, but they actually feel like book reports, just informational downloads. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes there's real insight there and they're respectful in a lot of cases of the artistry that they're chronicling, because I do like to watch a lot of music documentaries and such, but they're, they're lacking their own artistry. And then comes along something like this film from Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw takes place in Northern Italy. And it's about the process of procuring mostly, but also selling and tasting the Alba truffle, which is one of the world's most coveted culinary delicacies. And those title truffle hunters for Dweck and Kershaw, they might actually be the dogs more so than their owners, right? Because their dogs, they, they don't just play a role in finding these, no, right? They do most of the work. No, I mean, I think they're required because of their ability to actually sniff them out. And we both praise this movie on that Chicago Film Critics ballot show it was my number one choice for best cinematography of the year. And it's not so much that the, the movie romanticizes these men and their dogs or tries to glorify them, but it does elevate their struggle, I think, and it it honors them with frames that evoke these masterful paintings. The film is composed almost entirely of still tableaus, 
combining natural light and shadow and splashes of color. There's a scene and we could pick out so many of them, but there's one where an elderly man who's a recurring character is sitting at a table and he's eating by an open window that just kind of becomes a Vermeer Mm -hmm. that you could see if you were in a museum. It all feels natural, but there's also a dark wine bottle that's positioned perfectly in the foreground so that the empty part at the top of the bottle filters the light yellow of the curtain on the other side of it, which gives it this beautiful amber glow. And I'm not suggesting that that was staged, but it's it's magical almost that the bottle is exactly in that space and does give us that bit of color. And you watch this movie without any talking head interviews, without any facts and figures or text on screen or any kind of imposed narrative, you understand how they find these truffles. You understand the competition, who the different marketplace players are and their roles in it. But it's all done with a style and an approach that is basically direct cinema, but with an emphasis on expressing everyday life, not just recording everyday life. And I I think it warrants that type of expression because it's something mysterious. And as I said, magical and, and it is impermanent. This is this place. that's kind of untouched by technology or modern practices. And only these old Italian men and their dogs seem to be able to find these incredible truffles. So for me, if I was a student who was hoping one day to make documentary films, I think Truffle Hunters would be an incredible touchstone. It's obviously, Josh, setting a bar here incredibly insanely high, but showing you that it's possible to tell a story and to capture real life without being obtrusive, but make it artistically striking and poignant as well. That's what The Truffle Hunters pulls off. And this is that film that people won't have a chance to see for a few more months. Unfortunately, March 5th, 2021 is when it's expected to get a release. Yeah, it's it's definitely putting the aesthetic at the forefront. And I think maybe a lot of documentaries work the other way around is let's get our information, as you were saying, and then, you know, let's present it as compellingly as we can, but we got to get the information first. And (laughs) this is almost like, I mean, the the tableau you're describing, I mean, it's got to be staged, right? Uh, to use that word, to to make sure the light falls in exactly those ways. And so many shots in this movie are exactly like that. We're we're back to this question of documentary ethics. It's a recurring theme in a lot of our picks. Uh, but the result here is that the aesthetics go first, and that's not at the expense of. Maybe it's a little bit at the expense of some information because I think we learn sure. enough, but there are yes. some gaps here where, where we're like, even when we were talking about before, we're like, was that one guy a judge? Is he a restaurant critic? You know, you don't have all those details, but that's okay. No. Yeah. I guess I'm saying they're superfluous. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But what yeah. you do get is it's not these, these men aren't just posing either because I think they managed to capture in their compositions and their tableaus, their personalities very much from the, yeah. you know, the cantankerous guy who refuses to hunt anymore because of the way he feels people have invaded the pastime and are poisoning dogs and, and disrespecting mm-hmm. boundaries, traditional boundaries. He doesn't want anything to do with it. We get to know him very well. We get to know the older guy who right. sneaks out of his window in the middle of the night to hunt because his wife doesn't want him to do it anymore. One of the shots of the year, Josh. Oh my gosh. And it's, and it's like, that's just building on what we've come to know about him throughout. Every time we return to him, that's kind of his story, right? There's this tension between Mm -hmm. him and his wife because she's, she feels you're just, this is dangerous for you. And it probably is. You understand her point of view. All that to say, like these are character portraits 
in addition to these painterly portraits that we get sure. in the truffle hunters. And to go back to the point about the information you're given, the the truth of the judge or the person that we see in that one scene tasting that amazing looking fried eggs with fondue and the truffles that are sprinkled on top. It's not that we need to know who he is, right? Or what his background is or how many years he's been doing it. It's that he appreciates them on the level he does. That's really all we need to understand about his role in this process. Which is why he gets like a a two minute single take static shot of just eating the dish. Yeah. Yeah, and now I'm hungry. Maybe a good stopping point, Josh. Part one of our top 10 films of 2020 is over. We will be back next week with part two, and you will hear our five favorite films of the year. Of course, Michael Phillips and Tasha Robinson will also be back to partake in the fun. You can find our picks along with Michael and Tasha's picks so far over at filmspotting.net slash lists. If you want to send us some of your picks via social media, we are on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. It is Golden Brick Time. And yep, you get a vote. What film from an emerging director should win this year's Film Spotting Golden Brick Award? That poll is live at FilmSpotting.net. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter out in limited release mayor another very good documentary this year news of the world the new one from paul greengrass starring tom hanks that i have not had a chance to see yet one night in miami spoiler you are going to hear more about this on next week's show the debut feature from director regina king promising young woman also a first-time feature from writer director emerald fennel featuring a very good carrie mulligan but then when is she not very good and soul more spoilers pixar's new one also going to get some love next week wonder woman 1984 josh also set to come out alas you and i have not seen this yet hbo max is the platform and again we will close out our top 10 countdown next week with part two film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van Hogren. without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is kat sullivan thanks also to candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org for film spotting i'm josh larson and i'm adam kempinar Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.